lovely listeners and welcome. My name is Jess and you are listening to Literature for Life, part of the awesome Femon Podcast Collective. This is a space for literature lovers to discuss the books, memoirs, poems, pieces of literature that have had a significant impact on them or the way they live their lives, something that has really stuck with them. My guest today is another fellow Femon host, a writer of screenplays and an award-winning filmmaker, as well as the epic comic Reben author. <laughs> She's also a lover of hiking and Pilates, is the host of Femon podcast Fine Cut, and the beautiful poetry series Where I'm From, which I was so lucky to be involved in and totally remembered when I was writing this intro. Welcome, Alison Shelton. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and talking about this book. That it was. I just also love the prompt of, I love prompts, obviously, because I host a poetry series that is, you know, all centered around the prompt where I'm from, um, to think about a book that has really stuck with me. And it, it took me a minute. And I reread a few books to to finally settle on The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. That was yeah. my choice. That's my choice. I'm I'm very excited to hear all about your choice, but I um I totally understand that because if I were to be a guest on my own podcast, I do not know what I would choose <laughs> because I've read some excellent books, but I don't often come back to books and yeah. The books that I do are usually purely for escapism, um, mm-hmm. which I think is valid. But yeah, so I would be totally stuck. Um, but I am glad that um, one day I got an email from you like, the bell jar. Yes. Because I wanted to reread it because I knew it had been really significant to me in my teen and early 20s. And then I think I probably read it again when I was 30, but I haven't read it in a long time and I haven't been 30 in a long time. And uh I was like, oh, I want to read it again. And sometimes the things that spoke to us when we were teenagers are just rough, at least for me. Like I was, you know, going through a hard time and I was just happy to have emotion reflected back at me. Yeah. Sometimes look like rereading it. I'm like, okay, that's not, (laughs) not that artfully done, but I was not that choosy at that time. And I was willing to just read anything because I felt so alone. And yeah. there weren't as many choices back then as there are now, you know, because oh, yeah. I'm in my late forties and like, there were a lot, they're just, it's such a different world now mm. than it was then. You can just go on the internet and like search around. For me, it was like, I went to the library and looked at the shelves and what books hadn't I read yet. Okay. <laughs> did you, like, did you keep an eye out for like a specific type of cover when you were looking for these books because I've heard like covers without realizing it we always look for like specific covers I've heard that from I because I listened to your conversation with Erica where she Mm. talked about like the formulas of covers um I don't think I think I literature I guess like covers that implied that they were serious literature um but it was mostly just spines of books and then I had a English teacher in high school Mr. Burns, who introduced me to different, like different books. And then I had an AP English. That's a American thing. I think AP, um, Mrs. Matthews, who I like tried to find over the years. Cause I wanted to thank her because we had a, we had a like whole section about underrepresented writers and she introduced me to 
Toni Morrison and Leslie Marmon Silko and Louise Erdridge and um, Zora Neale Hurston and so many writers that changed my life. So teachers are important and it's also yeah. incredibly important not to ban books. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and just what you were saying about as a kid, I think you read, not a kid, but as a teenager, you read for, for emotion. I think um, that definitely rings true with some of the stuff that I read. Like I was just reading, um, I would get hooked on a book or a series of books, depending on how it made me feel, mm -hmm. um, which is why I think I, <laughs> oh God, I'm thinking about all the like, um, all the like, sexy teen rom-com books <laughs> yes. reading now <laughs> which we didn't even have those we just had like sweet valley high which was just really boring it was like a daytime <laughs> soap but it was just oh, like no. lots of shenanigans from teenagers you know but just even reading about teenagers especially when I was a tween because that's yeah. when you really want to read about teenagers yeah or at least I did by the time I was a teenager I wanted to read about people in their 20s you know teenagers seem passe so I think that's part of the reason the bell jar resonated with me so much too because she's like a junior in college yeah and okay. as a junior in high school it was like oh god I can't wait to be a junior in college like all of these problems that I have will be gone by then mm -hmm. obviously um yeah because yeah. I'll no longer be in high school this terrible because I did not enjoy high school um although I think outward facing wise I seemed like I mean I did well in high school and I had friends and I was like successful I don't think people I'm not a person people would have assumed hated high school but I hated it oh, like, yeah. I couldn't wait till it was over it was just very difficult for me and um so I did think like oh when I get to college it's going to be totally different which I mean it kind of was to be yeah. honest but that's I think partially because I went to therapy mm -hmm. and I dealt with a lot of the issues that I was struggling with in high school and so I had more tools in college and also I was not forced to be with people that I, I don't know high school you're just like stuck you're really oh stuck. god oh yes no you are stuck you absolutely are stuck um so is in high school is that when you first read the bell jar yes so I read it in that class with Mr. Burns um we read like Catcher in the Rye and um then we had a invisible man and we had a choice, I think, and I chose this book and it just, it blew my mind. And I'm thinking back on it, I don't think I'd read that many women authors at that point who weren't mm -hmm. writing like Sweet Valley High or Judy Bloom, you know, these kind of like YA authors mm -hmm. who were speaking to tween and teen girls, you know, Ramona, Ramona Quimby books, like those kinds of books were written by women. But I think this was the first book I ever read that was about the inner life of a woman mm -hmm. um, and how, what a challenging landscape it was in the fifties. And I still related to it in the nineties of like trying to reconcile being a woman and a feminist, which I've always considered myself and feeling like the world was not a welcoming place. Yeah. And it was the first thing that I had ever read that really starts to reckon with, well, what do you do? How do you do this thing? How do you navigate a world that is inhospitable? That sounds like a lot to handle as a teenager. <laughs> I, was, I was definitely having a lot to handle. Yeah. I, I personally, I like, I was, nervous breakdown is not a clinical term. So I always use it with some 
like with a asterisk mm-hmm. because it's not a clinical term. Um, and so I, but I was having one. Mm-hmm. So whatever you want to call that, like a nervous system response, it was not a psychotic break because I still had touch with reality, but I was, you know, crying all the time. I didn't really think life had a lot of meaning. I was never suicidal, which she is in the bell jar. And I think that was also a really important distinction for me. Like I was really confronting like the hopelessness and powerlessness of my life, but Mm -hmm. I didn't want to leave. And she does. And so I think that was also like in a way validating for me. It was like, okay, well, I'm not here. Like, yes, I feel overwhelmed and at sea, but I do believe there's a shore somewhere. And I think that was an important distinction for me to know, like, okay, this probably isn't going to last forever. Yeah. It doesn't last forever for her either, but even in her most, like, but I mean, obviously Sylvia Plath, it did end that way for her. Yeah. So, so you're a teenager, you're going through um, a massive sort of internal struggle and you pick up this book and it sounds like you see yourself sort of reflected yes. back and had you seen anything else that had done that for you up until that point definitely not no. and I also related to the main character Esther because she is like an all-a student and an overachiever and I was those things um it's still something <laughs> perfectionism is still something that I deal with and she was I I truly related to this kind of like well if I it didn't take the exact same shape in the book. She's like publishing and getting an internship and do, but I was also like just chasing accomplishments, chasing grades and thinking that eventually like that would fill me up. And, and part of the reason I hit the wall is because I was raped. That's the main reason I hit the wall. And, and then I remembered like a bunch of um, trauma that I had completely like sublimated. Like I, didn't remember it at all so it was just it was my whole life changed really I thought I was one person and my life had been like this and then it changed in a very dramatic fashion and and everything I'd been chasing just felt meaningless because I felt like you know really like the rug had been ripped out from under me and 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 during that time I started to change what I thought what mattered to me because I was changing my identity basically. And so this book helped me, it validated me like accomplishments and outward praise. It doesn't fill the hole. That's an inside job. And even though that language is not used, it's just very clearly what's happening to Esther. She's just at Smith. And and it's very close to, I mean, I'm reading the biography of Sylvia Plath right now, which I feel like I'm going to be reading for the rest of my life because it's like a thousand pages long. But um, I've covered the whole time that the bell jar takes place. And it is very close to her autobiography. Like what Sylvia Plath went through is very similar to what Esther goes through in the bell jar. And um, she went to Smith. She was a scholarship student. She was like the best English student at Smith. She gets an internship. She's published. She was in New York for summer, all of these sort of like dream. And I was very much like, oh, if I just get into this college, if I just, I'll stop feeling like a piece of shit, right? Like it'll, it'll lift this feeling. 
And then I realized that, or I began to realize, I mean, I'm still working on it, but like that, that feeling, that self-loathing, like outward stuff isn't going to fix it. Like the self-loathing is in me. It's been planted there and has been growing. Um, so I just felt, I don't know. She somehow made me feel like less alone. Yes. But also like, maybe I'm asking the right questions. Maybe what I'm doing and questioning this whole system that has been presented to me as the way forward, i.e. capitalism, <laughs> white supremacy, but I didn't have those words, but that kind of like grinding yourself to dust to accomplish what, like maybe that I'm questioning this is worthwhile. And maybe it, that will save me in a way that it ultimately, you know, Sylvia Plath and it didn't save her. And I felt reading the book this time as a mother and a wife and all these words that are so complicated and laden with meaning. Um, she lived in a society in the 1950s and early 60s that really required women to erase themselves. And that's what I was also grappling with within the context of my family. Like in order to be in this system, you need to erase yourself. And I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I was choosing myself and this book helped me do that. Mm. I, I definitely understand what you're saying about um, as a teenager. I've, and I felt this keenly when I was sort of, um, uh, I graduated from, not graduated, I, I, um, I left school and then went to uni and then after uni I got a job and that's what you're supposed to do technically mm -hmm. you're supposed to like you said it's all set out and everybody's just like just focus on doing this and just focus on doing this put all your energy into doing this 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 and you'll be set mm -hmm. and I did all of that <laughs> and then I get to London and I've got my I've got my first like proper job and I put on a blazer suit and all this all this stuff and then I had the most hectic chaotic um year of my life when I got to London because I had been like uh from one achievement to the next from one, one achievement to the next and I'd done no real like I had a certain level of emotional intelligence but that wasn't it that wasn't sort of inward and so I got to London and I just I was doing all kinds of stupid shit and I was I felt the worst I'd felt and I was putting it all on Instagram and people are like oh Jess you look like you're having so much fun so many people said that to me and I just wanted to be like no I'm fucking miserable like I'm so depressed I'm eating Oreos for breakfast because I because I'm depressed I just want to eat like you know like it was just, and I think that, so what you're saying about being in that, in that, in, in that place, but then having something that, that helps and encourages you to think about how you feel and to prioritize how you feel and, and to look inwards and to make you the priority instead of everything that's happening around you. I think that's incredible. I think, I think that's so, I think that's what every single teenager slash person in their early 20s needs. Yeah, and then continues to need. There's just so little encouragement. Like you say, you were posting on Instagram. 
And that's like the world we live in, right? It's like, show me your accomplishments. And and I think people give social media a hard time to be perfectly honest because it's so pervasive, but it was the same way before social media. People still, there just wasn't the apparatus that there is to like shoot it out to the whole world, you yeah. know, but it was just the people in your sphere. Yeah. But I felt so much pressure to perform because of a myriad of reasons, but um. I felt like I was forever trying to prove that I deserve the space I took up in the world. Yeah. You know, I, I've said to my therapist, like, I felt like I was creating a dossier of like documents and experiences that I could show to anyone at any time to be like, see, I deserve it. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, space, words. And the reality is, is it's never full never like complete you never get an a it's and it's just like chasing that chasing the belief that 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 will happen someday yeah and and it doesn't in my experience um Mm -hmm. but I'm not like wildly successful but I do know people who are and I don't think it changes you intrinsically you know yeah um yeah and yeah I and I think if you want to look, I mean, it's not very far in the subtext of this book. Like it is a cautionary tale, like take care of yourself because you might get to the point where it's too much and you might just want to be done. Mm. And I didn't want to do that. That yeah. was not something that I, and I, I think, that, and I, I'm grateful. That's not a struggle I've had because I know a lot of people who have struggled with it and it's, uh, very difficult Mm. and I know some people have lost that struggle (laughs) yeah um and it's heartbreaking for everyone um so I'm grateful I didn't struggle with suicidal ideation that wasn't it for me um yeah and I know that's a gift would you mind telling us a little bit about the story then because I mean you've explained I think you've explained certain bits but it might help our listeners if (laughs) if we just maybe yeah give them a little bit more detail just just and I'm it's especially basic the story yeah but I'm, yeah. I'm I'm also especially keen to um to talk about exactly how or, or the ways in which she she portrays that sort of mental health element which is a big part of the book right like that's yes. kind of yeah well the book kind of it does such a brilliant job and I appreciated it a lot reading it this time because I'm older and I've be, I've written a lot more myself So I'm coming at it from a different space. Um, So it starts off, she's in New York for the summer. She's a, I don't know what the fake magazine is. The real magazine is she was an intern at Mademoiselle. And it was a huge like competition of college girls and, and the ones who won, it's a small number, like eight, 10, you know, spend the summer in Mademoiselle as like guest editors. And they get things published in Mademoiselle. They get to, they go to party. It's a whole like thing. And they stay in the Barbizon, you know, the women's hotel and, and Esther, who is Sylvia is, is poor, is from a poorer background. So she's like eating caviar. She's going, she has a whole different life than she's ever had before. And even there, you start to feel these like pricks of things are not quite right with Esther. Um, she you know can't sleep sometimes she at the end throws all her clothes off the top of the building as like a gesture you know you can kind of feel like that she is people believe in her 
because she's obviously brilliant and that the pre the pressure is becoming too much mm. and she goes home she does not get this like summer class at harvard where with a writer in residence thing it's like kind of the first thing she doesn't get and it she's home for the summer and she doesn't know what to do like idle hands <laughs> she's not good with them because she's one of these people who's always chasing the next thing right so okay thing yeah worked out for her she's too late for her to go to the Cape and waitress or so she's home with her mom and they have a fraught relationship because her dad died when she was young and her mother is like a single working mother which was in the 50s a very unusual situation and it was something yeah. people didn't really talk about even though obviously it's not that unusual people are doing it um and she starts to just that's when it really the mental health stuff really starts to unravel she's gonna learn german she's gonna do shorthand she's she's trying to come up with reasons how to keep herself busy but she can't like she just can't make herself do it um and she starts to become like insomniac she can't sleep she is having a hard time eating her mother tries to help her tries to take her to a therapist um or a psychiatrist and um they're not it's a dude he's not very helpful uh but he does after not very long sign her for sign her up for shock treatment oh and yeah oh my god yeah so she receives shock treatment and it like destroys her basically she mm. feels like she's being electrocuted she continues and and side note I've read a bit actually in her biography it talks about shock treatments at that time and how some of the patients would like their backs would be broken because of the amount of electricity that would be put through their bodies oh before God. they started strapping them down. So it was a horror show yeah. what was done to her and many, many women and some men, but mostly women. And um, so then she not long after takes a bottle of pills and buries herself in their basement and she goes missing. She writes them a note. I went out for a walk or whatever, or something like that. She goes missing for like a few days. And then they, they find her under the house. Oh my gosh. And she's still alive, which is all of this is exactly what happened to Sylvia Plath. And she's kind of famous because she's been this mademoiselle intern. She's at Smith on a scholarship. So she's in like hundreds of newspapers that this girl is missing. It's a big okay. story. And then she gets found and she's institutionalized obviously mm. um because she's tried to kill herself and um amazingly sylvia plath and her character esther greenwood have a mentor um in real life her name was mrs proudy and she wrote like um now voyager and stella dallas like she was a very successful female novelist well she's a successful novelist she happened to be a female and she paid to transfer Sylvia and the character Esther to a fancier facility and and Esther and Sylvia talk about how they never want to be like this again how how being institutionalized you fear going to be locked away and that the keys thrown away and she she Esther starts to get a little better she gets a good doctor a woman who she feels this kind of bond with and she makes her promise to not have her have shock treatments again um, and she goes on, I think Esther, but definitely Sylvia went on insulin coma therapy as well, which is where they shoot you full of insulin. And basically you become like lethargic and you gain tons of weight 
and you're not depressed anymore because you're just oh my gosh essentially in a like mild Um, and it's 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 heartbreaking that most of this like this happened mostly to women I'm actually really intrigued by um and I want to learn more about um the kind of history of it you know sort of women being institutionalized um for uh, for their mental health really well it um, isn't even if you start doing research just like spoiler it's not even for their mental health it's when they become difficult yeah like they talk about or hysterical they talk she talks about it in sylvia Plath's biography that she went to the same institution that jacqueline kennedy went to when she found out that jack was cheating on her he sent her to a facility to you know basically cool off or you know get treatment because she was hysterical and there's all all kinds of stuff like that and and I have a personal um interest because my grandmother my maternal grandmother was institutionalized and died in an institution and um was institutionalized essentially for being hysterical and and her husband was cheating on her and so um I mean she died because she was a woman yeah that's why she died and so for all of so that so there is also this personal element that plays out for me in this book um because that doesn't feel that far removed and my mother also had mental health struggles when I was a child and and the specter of insanity and craziness was something that followed me around and was used against me a lot of my young life so was that was that something that was sort of in the front of your mind when you read it as a teenager or more when you picked it back up as a as did you say when you were 30 oh I think it was kind of old it was there to some extent because of course um when I was young my mother had a nervous breakdown I mean and 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 was called crazy and and I was very aware of the fact that my grandmother had died in a similar situation okay as a young child so I carried that around with me a lot and I felt very responsible for proving that my mom was worthwhile yeah deserved to take up the space she took up and uh, took a lot of that on for myself so and then you know when I was dealing with the fallout of being raped yeah I was hysterical certainly people were calling me that and using those words and so all of this and and the, and the end is that Esther gets better. She does, in fact, get shock treatment again. Um, but this time it's more well administered. Um, and it helps her. And it's like a happy ending. She she leaves the mental hospital. She goes back to Smith, um, which is what happened in real life. And it's interesting reading the biography because Mrs. Prouty talks a lot about who who had her own mental health struggles um that she's worried about her because she feels like she got better too fast and she's worried that she'll fall apart again and this time she won't be able to make herself whole again um which is exactly what happened and I think that also all resonated with me like all healing is so messy and oh yeah uh not quick and that that's good actually if you're feeling like 100% better six weeks later probably (laughs) there's more going on but I mean I did that too I'm not gonna lie I mean there's definitely certain times in my life where I performed happiness because I was just so tired of feeling broken oh yeah I I think also happens in the book like she just doesn't want to be this person anymore 
yeah she wants to be she wants to be brilliant she just wants to be the person I mean this is I haven't even read it but it sounds like (laughs) she just wanted to be the person everyone thought she was which is I think what happens to most of us at some point if not many points in our lives and is the reason I think um social media is so pervasive and you know is the reason that putting on a front is so becomes so second nature because you're like well fake it till I make it kind of thing like if I just um if I just put on a front like you know maybe maybe I'll just become that person but what you were saying about healing being messy is so true and I I still think um um I still think that it's so easy to slip into that um oh yeah I've, I've got sort of um, I'm struggling with my mental health but um but uh, you know I'm gonna find ways to fix it like it's so easy when when you're struggling with mental health to just try to take the responsibility on yourself for fixing it mm-hmm. um and I I think that's that that narrative is getting so much that's over the last sort of few years that has that's really intensified with the whole sort of wellness industry and the self-care industry and there's always well, a place for self-care you know yeah for me, like learning that phrase was like oh that's what that is because yes. that was definitely a big part of my upbringing because I grew up in a very new age spiritual environment so there was a lot of like toxic positivity and also um like you create your destiny which I find uh, and also really toxic. Um, and so any problems are also something you created and, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's hard. I've, I, I have a lot of friends who are chronically ill and it's interesting because a lot of people are and yeah. don't talk about it because people think it's a downer, uh, or something. <laughs> and I think it's interesting because I, it's like I first had a friend who started talking to me about what was going on with her. And then you find like, oh, when you're open to hearing those stories, you hear more. It's just like anything else. In life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and all of them are like, oh, you know, just listening makes a big difference. Like just having you listen and not try to fix it. Um, and I don't find it that hard to just listen. Like I obviously I, I really hope my friends find healing and get better but also like in the meantime they don't need to act like they are but it doesn't it's not necessary I know the world's really fucked (laughs) I don't need to hide it from me (laughs) yeah I'm aware like and I think the more where you are like I don't know and so it's been easier for me as I've gotten older to just lean into like you know things are hard but also those small joys that we get out of life make life possible. And I think sometimes why, when I return to things that I enjoyed as a teenager, I'm like, dang, like this is really dark. Yes. (laughs) You know, like I can't go there. And that was the thing that I really appreciated about the bell jar and didn't remember at all is how darkly funny it is. Like it is a funny there's like a lot of funny thing I know because the like summary makes it just sound like oh Jesus but there are a lot of funny things and she's so her observations are so spot on and he, and and it gives me such a deep appreciation really of what my mom you know 
kind of grew up with. Mm-hmm. This is the world she grew up in. And, and I know that we have so much that needs to get better. And it is hard living in the United States where it feels like people are really trying to legislate that we're not human, like that we don't matter and our lives don't matter. Um, and there's still so much to do. But we do not live in a time, and I hope we never go back to it, where women can't get divorced and women can't get credit cards and women can't buy homes. But that's where we were. Um, and I think, and I said this not that long ago in, a, in an Instagram, death was more appealing to Sylvia Plath than living. Basically, that was the world. Mm. And, and I read a statistic all during this time when I'm reading all this stuff about how the suicide rates for women has gone down since those days. And it's very, it's very obvious to make the connection that the suicide mm-hmm. rate has gone down because we are allowed some autonomy. Yeah. We are allowed to leave abusive marriages. We are allowed to have financial independence. And the fact that I'm using allowed when these are basic human rights is fucked up. Um, but it's true. And when people talk about making America great again or making anywhere great again, what they're really talking about is returning to the dominance of cishet white men and for the rest of us to pay the price with our lives. Yeah. I, I'd like to, um, you, you said that when you came back, when you read it again, you, you could appreciate how, how darkly funny it was mm-hmm. um so talk to us about coming back to the book because you like I th- th- I mean this is a space where we talk about the books that have really stuck with us and the books we come back to um how many times have you read the bell jar and sort of what has it been like coming back to it like years later I'm guessing I've probably read it like six or seven times probably oh really at the time that I read it I think I read it like twice when I read it and then I kind okay. of read it regularly for a while. And then I, maybe more, it's hard for me to, like we were talking about this before we started recording. It's hard for me to remember. Like when I, yeah. like I I've had to like, my husband was like, you must start a Goodreads account. And this was like, I think even before I was, cause I was off social media for a long time because I just couldn't deal with it. <laughs> and I did feel like I was performing something so I just had to stop, <laughs> just had to unplug from it completely because I am still struggling with that perfectionist model. And so I was like, I can't engage with this and like not do it right. Yeah. And not right. think that you're doing something wrong or yeah, yeah I get it. But I just had to be like, nope, like, yeah. uh-uh. so when I came back, um, I think even before that I did Goodreads and I was like, I don't want to be on anything. You know, it's like, you can keep it totally private. You don't have to just like keep track of the books you read. Yeah. <laughs> Do it. Um, and then honestly on Instagram, part of my whole thing I do is share about books that I'm reading and it has been a good exercise to just pick out things that really moved me about the book and how I responded to it. Um, and I think rereading it this time, I responded so much to the history of of being a woman in this country specifically, although she lives in England and that is where she killed herself. Um, she, um, I really connected to like, this woman is dead because 
she felt like she needed to erase herself. Yeah. And she couldn't do it alive. So she died. And I really felt that kind of like in a more profound, I think particularly with politically what's happening in America um, and how obviously they're trying to get rid of abortion um, and completely. And they're also now trying to ban <laughs> no fault divorces in certain states. Like they are trying to roll really? back. Yeah. Oh my God. And so it is this kind of, it does feel like a war on, and I say women because I'm a woman, but it's a war on, <laughs> on everyone. Mm-hmm. Truly. I mean, cause if my rights are impacted or um, black people's rights or queer people's rights are impacted, it's not good for any of us. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like reading it, reading it like recently, you're, you because reading it as a teenager you you focused on yourself and what you were going through at that point but reading it later on um and more recently it sounds like you've been able to more think about what's going on around you like the wider context instead of instead of it being you know and it can be both but instead of it being mostly about sort of validation for how you're feeling in the moment it's mostly like no this shit is still going on and like taking in the wider context and that's what I love about books that stick with us is we come back to them and every time we get something new and I think in this in in this situation the impact has been profound in so many different ways because you know we keep coming back to a sort of wider political context that is um the shrinking of and erasure of women's rights like women's basic human rights um and so for this book to like be be slotting into that slotting in and also starting that conversation again and again I think is brilliant well and I think she does resonate with so many because it's she's one of those people that if I post about her people will respond like Mm -hmm. because it's not only the Belger but her poetry and I mean her marriage with Ted Hughes and and um and the way she died, like she reaches a lot of people. Um, and I think that, that I think you're completely right about widening the lens that reading it now. And I think when I first read it, I was deep in it and I didn't know if there was another side or if I'd ever get there. Mm -hmm. And, um, there is, and I did. And so I'm not reading it like that anymore. I'm not reading it. Um, with the same I'm not at sea anymore yeah and so that but I but I feel like that and and I think sometimes I need it to be reminded of how I felt because um for a long time I just kind of wanted to just like cover it over like paper it over you know like it wasn't that bad uh I'm fine you know, all these kind of things we tell ourselves. And I, I have definitely cycled through denying what happened to me, um, myself, because I just couldn't make space for it in my life or just pretending it didn't happen, you know? So, um, now I feel like I'm in a space and I mean, I'm saying it publicly and writing about it. So it's saying it. Um, and, and that actually helps me to claim it yeah um and 
Sylvia Poth helped me do that. She helped me do that. And I, and <laughs> cry um, <laughs> because she did that. Yeah. And she showed us all like, she showed us something about ourselves and that this most, I'm guessing most painful, shameful thing. There is actually no reason to be ashamed. You didn't do anything wrong. And if you share these things, it'll help people. Yeah. Because she helped me. Yeah. Um, And so I think she speaks to a lot of us who who have been in that place um, and really grappled with, like, what does it feel like to be a woman in the society that feels like doesn't really want us? Mm. Yeah. I didn't even... (laughs) This is why I, I love talking to people about the books that matter to them because um, I haven't read this book, but it touches on two things that I really love talking to people about. One is mental health because everybody has it and it appears in so many different ways. Um, and just talking about it can help other people identify what they are going through. But also the whole idea of shame, which I... I've only really started thinking about a couple of years ago. Um, But I think it's hard to, I mean, I think it's hard to portray in a way that I think will resonate with people that doesn't feel like icky. Um, And so when I come across books that do it and do it well, um, I, I think, I just think it's a very valuable piece of literature to have or to to be able to come back to because I think shame is one of those things that's things that can really sit under the surface um and so if you can identify it and you can and like you said you can have you can have something in your hands that is telling you that like it's okay it's okay to feel that way you're you're not alone I think that's I th- I think that's incredible. Yeah. I mean there's a reason it sold so millions of copies. Yeah. And 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 that was the other thing. I was like, "Oh, I felt kind of like nervous saying this book means so much to me when I first shared it on social media because it's sort of like also a book that like emo girls read and, you know, um love and but I do love it. And yeah. then when I posted about it, a lot of women I know were like, oh, God, this book, like this book means so much to me. And I'm like, I'm not going to be embarrassed. I like, it's like, it's like, I like Pride and Prejudice. I know it's the most basic Jane Austen, but it's the one I like, you know, like millions of people can't be wrong. <laughs> I mean, no. They can be. There are books, millions of people like that I don't like, but it's like, you know. Are we talking about Fifty Shades of Grey now? (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't even, like, get it. I was like, oh, okay. Like, this book isn't for me. This is a conversation. I have, no, I'm not your target audience. I don't, yeah. Um, (laughs) And I don't leave bad reviews. Like, I'm a person who doesn't leave bad reviews because I truly believe that it's not for me. Like, it's not for me to say this is bad. It's just not for me. 
and and someone poured their heart and soul into it whatever it is a movie a television show a book like someone really cared trust me it's hard to make oh, these yeah. things yeah. and and who am I to come shit on it mm. like that's that's how I feel and and I mean it, it also partially comes from knowing so many people who work in film and television and knowing how hard they work on these things and I don't want to I would never be like I'm watching this and it sucks but yeah but it's and, also yeah. just me it's kind of mean yeah me. and also it creates that embarrassment that other people can yeah. feel like if someone's shitting on a book and you're like oh god it well it really spoke well, to me then it. you don't want to like <laughs> you don't want to feel bad about that like you know, I'm sure 50, Gra- 50 Shades of Grey spoke to a lot of people. <laughs> it obviously did. And yeah. so many women felt like, oh, turned on by it. Like yeah. for the first time in their life, they felt turned on by something. So even though the book was not for me, I'm grateful the book exists. Yeah. Anything that like helps women, women get in touch with their sexuality, a million times, yes. Oh, because there is- are so many women who are like, this isn't for me. Like, I'm not allowed to get turned on. I don't know how. Like, and and they're just so disengaged from their body. And and I get it because it's a fucking thing of terror because people are trying to legislate it. But, you know, taking taking ownership of our own bodies and enjoying sex, I think, is is powerful. Oh, and yeah. Scary to a lot of people. Scary. Yeah. But let's <laughs> scare them. That's because we're being told that um, we shouldn't have body autonomy. <laughs> shouldn't have body autonomy. Definitely shouldn't enjoy sex. Because no, if you do, you're no. A slut. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, you are absolutely. Yeah, so anything that's um, getting ladies to talk about orgasms. Probably. Oh my gosh, I mean, we've definitely been through all of the emotions today. But um, <laughs> yes, you are such. <laughs> you are such a wonderful human. Thank you so much for talking to me and and. Pleasure. opening up to me and our lovely listeners about all the feels that this book sort of creates for you and um and yeah but before I let you go um I ask everyone this question um and I've got some really interesting answers so far um who do you think should read this book I think if you have a teenage daughter who's depressed you should read it for sure. It'll give you some insight. Um, I think if you've ever been ashamed of being depressed, you should read it because one of the most brilliant minds there is was depressed, deeply depressed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and I think I'm currently reading this book called Sensitive about being sensitive, which apparently I am because I literally like cry almost through the whole book, which is a real sign that you're a highly sensitive person. Um, I think that's what this book is actually about too. Yeah. Being sensitive, feeling things. And so I think if you're just feeling alone with that, or if you have a feeling like, or if you watched Mad Men and you want to know what it was really like, you know, interested <laughs> in like the 50s and 60s, yeah. I think it's a great historical document. And it talks, okay. it's so specific and where she stayed and what she ate and the cabs and, I feel like, and now reading her biography, it gives me, it gives me a deep appreciation for the people who came before me. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. That is, that is so, so wonderful. Thank you for being a wonderful guest. 
thanks for having me Jess it was so lovely yeah I can see why you just end up talking and talking because this is good stuff to talk about these is right right but I know that you like brevity so (laughs) we could talk about 50 shades today but we won't (laughs) (laughs) that's a different podcast yeah it will or a different guest perhaps um Yes, I mean, we could just create it. Like, yeah. this is what Fairmont is about. We just create what we want to create. Let's That's talk about true. Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Thank you again. This has been so lovely. Thank you, Jess.